The following message is by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Content Developer and Global Trainer with Hands to the Plow Ministries. You can find more from Dr. DeRoshi at www.jasonderoshi.com. May God bless you. It's such a joy to be with you today. This is my 11th time to come to your country. I came first through international adoptions. Our younger three children, as Dr. Freyu said, we brought from Ethiopia. My wife, Teresa, and I have been married for 29 years. We have six children. And this last year, I became a grandfather. Praise the Lord. It is a joy to be with you today. I bring with me a team. Dr. Joey Allen is missions professor at Midwestern Theological Seminary. He and I are colleagues in Kansas City, Missouri, and the Southern Baptist Convention of Churches loves Jesus and has sent us here to greet you. I also come with a couple, Mark and Debbie Maloney. Mark and I serve together at Hands to the Plow Ministries. It's a mission organization in Minnesota that has sent me here to train church leaders while remembering the poor. And then I got to bring my sister-in-law, Tamara. She has prayed for this country and for our ministry in Ethiopia for 13 years. And it's a joy that she now got to come with me to serve here. As we enter into our lecture, let's pray to Xavier. Lord Christ, we thank you that you are seated on the throne, sovereign over all things, greater than he who is in the world, and we praise you. We praise you that you have entered into our space and time through Jesus, have entered into darkness and brought light. You have moved us from that kingdom into your kingdom, and we praise you. We praise you for life that has overcome death. We thank you for light that has overcome the night. We celebrate you today, and we praise you that you are worth serving, worth knowing, and worth loving. Meet us here in this place for the glory of your Son, for the fame of his name among all the nations, we pray. Amen. The amount of material that I have for you in the next two hours is what I often teach in six hours. So hold on tight. Don't get thrown from your cart. All that I'm about to say, I will pass on to Dr. Freyu, and you can have it in written form so that it can benefit your future ministries. We are also recording this both through video and audio, and I pray that it would be able to be brought back to your churches, to your students, to your ministries, and, and serve you insofar it is as faithful to this book. All that we say must be aligned with this Word. We must be under the Word of God, not over the Word of God. It is the highest authority that God has given us as a clear and without error representation of His Word, His will, His purposes. And so I pray that as I talk about He is greater, spiritual warfare for kingdom advance, that all that I say would be aligned with this book. But it is up to you to wrestle hard with this book and discern if what I say is true. May God help us today. Jesus Christ is an all-sovereign Savior who is progressively realizing His saving reign through the church by making disciples of all nations. Our Christian hope is sure, grounded on a foundation that is unmovable. For the living God in believers is greater than He who is in the world. Amen? Darkness is real, but in Christ we have overcome every evil force. 
He came to proclaim liberty to the captives. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Luke 4. He came to deliver us from this present evil age. Galatians 4. Galatians 1. And He came to to open our eyes so that Jews and Gentiles alike may turn from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God. Acts 26. In Christ, believers enjoy divine power to destroy strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10. And we must, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, take up the whole armor of God to stand firm and to help others stand firm in the evil day. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you might have life abundantly. Amen? Amen. So this message today attempts to help God's people to enjoy a greater measure of fullness and fruitfulness for the glory of Jesus. What I'm about to say seeks to nurture holiness in the soul, to maximize the gospelizing of peoples, and to mobilize missions for the sake of Jesus' name. I seek to bring six points to you today. Affirmations regarding spiritual warfare that I believe are grounded in this book. Here are the six. Number one, God is the supreme ruler and orchestrator of all things, absolutely sovereign over this world, including supernatural, natural, and moral evil. Nothing happens outside of His control. Number two, God is stronger than the evil one. He has decisively defeated Him through Christ, and He will defeat Him entirely. Come, Lord Jesus. Number three, Christ frees believers from enslavement to the devil, and He grants them both a new identity as sons and daughters of God, and a full eternal security in Him. Number four, the evil one, the devil, works evil against both non-believers and believers alike. Number five, Christ has given Christians authority to battle evil. He's given us grace to persevere through evil. And He's given us the promise of full deliverance from evil. Number six, Christ is advancing His kingdom through His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So number one, hopefully you have a handout. Feel free to follow along. Number one, God is over all things. God is the supreme ruler and orchestrator of all things, including supernatural, natural, and moral evil. There are many, many Bible references that saturate all that I'm about to say, but I'm not going to be able to read them all, so it's going to be limited. But again, all that I say and all that I have written down will be available through Dr. Freyu. We have a God who sovereignly and mysteriously creates and controls all things. Both light and darkness. Visible and invisible. Consider, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Isaiah 45, 7. Our God does so in ways that are always upright, just, and pure. In ways that work for His own glory. Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah 42. He is the decisive administrator over both material and spiritual creation. He institutes all lower authorities for His good ends. Thus, He is the one who ultimately governs evil powers 
to do what? To test, to punish, even through lies, to torment, to incite sin, all of which He uses for His virtuous purposes. We'll consider many of those as we move ahead. But we have an all-sovereign God. All-sovereign. Number two, God is stronger and victorious through Christ. We have a God who is stronger than the evil one, who has decisively defeated Him through Christ, and who will defeat Him entirely when He throws Him into the lake of fire. Under God's sovereign control, Satan, whom we also know of as the evil one or the devil, rules the world's kingdoms. Christ is stronger than this evil one. And the Lord has purposed that through Christ, His superior kingdom of light would contrast with and ultimately overcome the devil's worldly kingdom of darkness. In that day, voices will declare, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign, how long? Forever. John declared, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3. This was to fulfill Yahweh's earlier declaration. The Lord will famish all the gods of the earth, and to Him shall bow down each in its place all the peoples of the nations. Zephaniah 2. And again, turn to me and be saved all ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. God moved in power with Christ who has through His life, death, and resurrection bound the strong man. Mark 3. He has subdued every demonic force that no others had strength to subdue. Mark 5. This Jesus was the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3, 15. He was the offspring of Abraham who would take possession of the gate of his enemies and through whom the world's curse would be completely overcome by God's blessing, Galatians, Genesis 22, 17, and 18. Jesus is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? 1 John. 4.4, Jesus was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. It's how He started His ministry, declaring such to be the case. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God highly exalted Him and appointed Him with all authority in heaven and on earth. In the process, God cast out the devil from his evil position. Luke 10.18, Revelation 12.9, Jesus disarmed and shamed the demonic powers. God, through Christ, canceled all the record of debt due to disobedience that we had before God. In Christ, God canceled any legal claim of guilt that the devil had on believers' lives. We have been set free. God the Father has already subjected all things to Christ, Ephesians 1. And God will display that this is so in the future when He receives all things back at the end, 1 Corinthians 15. Number three, Christ gives freedom, new identity, and security to believers. Christ frees believers from enslavement to the devil and grants them both a new identity as sons and daughters of God and grants them a full eternal security in Him. God has freed those in Christ from the devil's chains. Because at the cross Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities of this dark age, the devil no longer holds any legal sway over Christians' lives. Colossians 2. Christ has bound the strong man, plundered his goods. Mark 3. 
And so there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. Why? Because Christ has paid our penalty and God has declared us righteous in Him. In Christ, we turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. God has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 2. Whereas we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world and following our father the devil, John 8, in Christ every believer is no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Galatians 4. Whereas the devil was our father, God has now claimed this role. He is now our Father, and He is a good protector. We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. And now through Him, God empowers Christians to understand the, th- the things freely given by God. 1 Corinthians 2. We have been delivered no longer in the dominion of darkness. In Christ, God's love is ever-present for believers, and believers remain eternally secure in Christ. In Christ, we are now from God and have overcome all the evil spirits who work in this world, which lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 4. More specifically, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now notice there's a group that's born of God, and then there is one who is born of God in that passage. The reference to he who was born of God refers to Jesus who is greater than he who is in the world and thus can guard us from the evil one. First, when John says in 1 John 5.18 that a Christian will not keep on sinning but will enjoy Christ's protection in a way that the evil one will not touch him. We must know that Jesus does not, or that John does not mean that Christians are already functionally perfect. How many are perfect in this room? Not me. No, that's not what it means. It also does not mean that our freedom in Christ results in the devil not being able to lure us away into temporary evil. All of us still sin. That's not what the text means then. The apostle highlights that Christians can sin. Remember 1 John 1? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I write these things to you so that you will not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So not only does John note that Christians sin, John also implies that we can temporarily love the world and the things in the world. 1 John 2.15 However, true believers will confess their sins and find rest in their propitiatory advocate. Furthermore, the overall disposition of their lives, if we are indeed believers will not be toward sin, but toward loving the Father, toward doing His will, the result of which will be abiding with Him forever. 1 John 2, 17. Second, in highlighting that Christ will protect believers in 5.18, and that the evil one will not touch them, John does not mean that the devil cannot torment or try believers In this present time, 
What we read in 3.8 is that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil, but they are not yet finally and completely annihilated. Christians can still experience as Paul says, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Romans 8. But not even demonic power can separate one of God's sheep from God's loving care. No power, no angel. God's love for us is secure. God loves all of His own in the present, and He will ultimately guard every believer from Satan in a way that makes every Christian eternally secure. Colin Cruz has said of 1 Corinthians 5.18, Jesus Christ will keep those born of God from being led astray by false teaching, and there is much of it in this country. May God protect His church. Through Christ's resurrection, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. That's how secure we are. We are a people who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, 1 Peter 1. In the present day, God is already, even now, we are already raised up with Christ, seated with Him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ, Ephesians 2. Having our souls secure in Christ still requires that we fight against evil and that we fight for holiness. That's spiritual warfare language. After highlighting that God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Paul warned Christians that unrepentant sin in one's life could give the devil ground tapas, to work, even in a Christian. Ephesians 4.27. Paul also stressed that we must put on the whole armor of God in order to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6. So what does Paul urge? Put to death what is earthly in you, seeing that you have put off the old self, the old Adam, man. It's all been set aside with its practices. You have put off, you have put on the new self, the new man which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its Creator. Colossians 3. Because we have died with Christ to sin, Paul also charges Christians to consider ourselves dead to sin. We are dead to that way of life, dead to that way of thinking, dead to those desires, those drives. They do not have reign over us. We must not let sin reign in our mortal body. Paul says, do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness. Men and women, guard your eyes from what you look at. Guard for your hands from what you touch. Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life May you be those who present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Romans 6.13 Here the Apostle indicates how our old pre-redeemed identity in Adam, that is the one the devil once enslaved, can resurface with its negative traits, with its negative tendencies. 
So as believers, we need to be a people who guard ourselves from negative, evil influences. We need to be a people who flee from sin. For evil influences can still challenge the Christian. And whenever sin has the potential to reign, the devil can work and torment. We come to point four. The devil is working evil today. The evil one, the devil, works evil against both non-believers and believers. So we ask ourselves first, who is the devil and how does he work? The term Satan means adversary, opponent, accuser, or as one recent scholar has potentially argued, the executioner. The Scripture applies this title, Satan, Satan. It applies Satan most commonly as a title. It even includes the definite article in front of it. It's the Satan, the accuser. Zechariah 3, Job 1 and 2, 2 Corinthians 11. But also, it can be used as a personal name without a definite article. He, who is he? I am Jason. He is Satan. It often refers to him by his personal name when talking about him as the ruler of this world and as the prince of demons. Now, Satan is also known as the devil, the serpent, the dragon. He masquerades as an angel of light, says Paul, but he is in fact a sinner, a murderer, a liar, an accuser. He's one who lures people away from God. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil sows sons who follow him, Matthew 13. He takes away the word from those who have no root, Mark 4. Satan is one who works as the head of an unholy trinity whom citizens of spiritual Babylon worship and or heed. So what is this trinity? Number one, it is the dragon, Satan himself. Number two, it is the leopard, bear, lion, beast who bears the dragon's authority, Revelation 13. And finally, it is the beastly false prophet who looks like a lamb, but who talks like a dragon, deceiving many, Revelation 3. These three represent respectively the world's king, this king's political system, and the religious support of that system. At the end, Jesus, the true lion-lamb king, will conquer and eternally punish all three of this false trinity and all that are associated with them. Revelation 17, 19, and 20. In the present, this great dragon, this ancient serpent, who's called the devil, who's called Satan, this very one who is the deceiver of the world, is working. What is he doing? This devil and his demons, we're told, are scheming, seeking to trouble, seeking to sift, to tempt, to deceive, to outwit, to harass, to ensnare, to devour, to accuse. All these are verbs associated directly with the devil and his work. Scripture shows that demons attached to individuals are able to openly converse with humans. To identify Christ, they recognize who Jesus is. These demons are even able to distinguish those in Christ from those who are not in Christ. Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? 
Scripture as a whole most often associates demons with their nature and function and highlights how they are messengers of God Himself. Some examples that we read in Scripture speak of a spirit of jealousy, an evil or harmful spirit, a lying spirit, a spirit of confusion, a spirit of whoredom, a spirit of uncleanness. We're just They're just simply called unclean spirits. Jesus says, you mute and deaf spirit. We learn of disabling spirits, a spirit of divination, a spirit of slavery, deceitful spirits, a spirit of fear. All of those straight out of texts. The New Testament describes demons with respect to their nature, that is, ontologically. It calls them fallen angels, 2 Peter 2, Jude 6, Revelation 12. Following the pattern of the heavenly council, think about the book of Job, where Yahweh was seated on His throne and all the angels came and gathered around Him. Following the pattern of the heavenly council, these demons appear to have spheres of responsibility a hierarchy of power, though most of the terms used to do not even clarify the specific relationship of ranks. Let's consider three texts. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So there is a demon that oversees territory. Those who are living in death have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Avadon. In Greek, he's called Apollyon. Or Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all of them created through Him and for Him. And in the very next chapter, those are the very rulers and authorities that God triumphs over through Christ. Demons confront humans in varied ways and levels of intensity. And they use not only supernatural means, but also sociological and psychological at an initial level, evil forces do, three, do, do this. Number one, they frustrate through means like obstruction, persecution, and physical ailment. They're at work in that way, probably even in this room right now. Frustrating Christians by creating sickness or other means of frustration. Number two, demons lie and tempt. Awakening responses like guilt, fear, and doubt. At a more extreme and less frequent level, demons do a third thing. They intensely torment people, assaulting in harsher ways, both from within and from without. While the eternal destiny of those in Christ is absolutely secure, Scripture is clear that the devil can frustrate and harm even believers. He can deceive them into thinking that they are still enslaved to sin. He can deceive them into thinking that they are weak and he is strong. He will negatively coerce and affect all who fail to resist him. So two levels. Level one, operative all throughout the world. The devil is frustrating, and the devil is lying and tempting. But then in unique, distinctive instances, his torment rises up to a new level 
that the Scripture calls demonization. The devil's enslavement of non-believers. All non-believers are slaves to demonic powers, following their father, the devil. They're slaves to the fear of death, says the writer of Hebrews chapter 4. As the God of this world, the devil is blinding those who are spiritually dead. Consider, if our gospel as we proclaim it is veiled, if people don't receive it, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing From seeing what? The light of the gospel of God's glory in Christ, who is the image of God. The devil ensnares people. He captures them to do his will, 2 Timothy 2. He works within all the sons of disobedience as they willingly obey him. He deceives them into following the passions of their flesh and to carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Consider Paul in Ephesians 2. He's talking about all of us in this room. All of you were dead. As dead as Lazarus in the grave. And you could not come out for the life of you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked. Following the course of this world. Following who? The prince of the power of the air who's at work in the sons of disobedience. But God. But God. Lazarus was dead and Jesus showed up and said, Lazarus, come forth! And the God who said, let light shine into darkness, has shone into our hearts and given us the light, of the, God, uh, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what God does. But those to whom the voice does not speak remain dead and enslaved to the devil. He who is in the world, 1 John 4.4, 4, wants people to love the world or the things in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of possessions. God, keep us from those things. None of these are from the Father, says John 2. These other masters, these other loves, what do they do? They compete with God. They stand as tempting instruments in the hand of the evil one. Paul says, and Moses says, to worship idols is to worship demons. Demons stand behind all the world's competing loves. God, protect us from the evil one. The devil's evil work against those in Christ. In the present age, the devil can exert significant influence even over believers' lives, frustrating externally and inciting twisted thoughts and worldly desires internally. Let's consider a number of texts. Frustration. The devil comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. John 10. So, what do we see? How does the devil do such things? Well, he deprives Job of goods and family. He strikes Job with illness. He harasses Paul. He hinders Paul's missionary movements. He imprisons and kills some in the church. He makes war on all Christians, and he demands to have certain believers like Peter in order to shake them that they may fall. All those texts speak of the devil. It's what he does against believers. When seeking to give aid to Daniel, 
a heavenly messenger was held back by the demonic prince of the kingdom of Persia until Michael, one of the angelic chief princes, came to help him, Daniel, 12, Daniel 10. Similar oppositions are seen in the way that Janus and Jambres, I know you don't say that in Amharic, J- however, however you say it, Janus and Jambres, what did they do? They stood against Moses and the truth that he proclaimed. Paul speaks about that in 2 Timothy 3. We see similar opposition in the way that Elymas, the magician, opposed Paul and Barnabas' gospel proclamation in Acts 13, in the way that the demonized slave girl with a spirit of divination was just (coughs) annoying and distracting Paul and others from his ministry, Acts 16. Christians should expect such trials. And resisting the devil, firm in our faith, allows us to retain hope that after, hear this, after you have suffered. Christ in His body had to carry His cross before He ever enjoyed the resurrection. We are the body of Christ and you should expect to suffer. Standing totally against what all the prosperity preachers say. But after you have carried your cross... After you have carried your cross and have suffered a little while compared to eternity, the God of all grace, what will He do? He will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 1 Peter 5, 9 and 10. The Satan not only frustrates, he also brings lies and temptation to believers. Sorry, I got a little behind on my PowerPoint. He brings lies and temptations. Scripture identifies demonic influence and sins like this. So, in all these texts, the devil is present. The demons are there. What do they do? They influence sins like idolatry, sexual immorality, Unforgiveness, legalism, unresolved anger, deceitful teaching, misuse of the tongue, jealousy, selfish ambition, false guilt. Let's just consider. 1 Corinthians 10.20. What does Paul say? What I am saying is this. What pagan sacrifice, to, sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. 1 Corinthians 10. Or consider 1 Timothy 1. No, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and to the teaching of demons. What do those teachings look like? Don't have sex and don't eat certain foods. That's what the demons are saying. Or consider James chapter 3, 14 and 15. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, are you jealous of someone today? They've moved ahead and you haven't moved ahead? If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This selfish ambition and jealousy in your soul is not wisdom that comes from down from above but it is earthly it is unspiritual it is demonic many of you came today thinking spiritual warfare we're going to talk about someone who comes up and has a demon on a sunday morning that's part of spiritual warfare but it's not most of what the bible talks about Most of spiritual warfare happens when you go to sit at your computer and images that objectify women come up and the question is, will you look at them or will you run away? 
That is spiritual warfare. When you consider the brokenness of your past, how you were hurt, will you retain bitterness? Will you nurture hatred, giving it turf to the devil in your soul? Or will you say, Jesus, help me? And entrust that He who is the vengeful vengeful one will indeed bring vengeance in His due course so that you don't have to bring vengeance. That's what Paul says in Romans 12. Love your enemy. Why? For vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and God can bring a much better justice than you ever can. So you love your enemy and let God deal with him because he will. That is spiritual warfare. Many of the sins that I've referred to here are tagged works of the flesh by Paul elsewhere. They're tagged evil things that stand in animosity to God's kingdom and that resemble the lifestyles of the sons of disobedience who are completely enslaved to the devil and whom God will throw with him into the lake of fire. From the beginning, the devil has been a liar. He moved Eve to question what was true. It was the devil who presently terrorizes the world with deception, Revelation 12. It's the devil who tempts, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Thessalonians 3. The devil can incite and tempt true God followers to sin. That's what he did to David in 1 Chronicles 21. The devil can accuse Christians of sin as if God never secured our atonement. A demonic spirit worked through Eliphaz to bring false accusations against Job, Job 4. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places are waging war against those who are in Christ, Ephesians 6. They're working to overcome us by doubts, by worries, by worldly passions. And they are pushing us to turn from God. 1 Thessalonians 3. Consider Paul's words. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that our labor was in vain. May it not be said of any of us. Satan can influence believers to set their minds against God. He can push them to temporarily deny Christ. Think about Peter. He may even be able to fill their hearts and to move them to lie to the Holy Spirit. When those of us in Christ engage in sin, we are not walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5. Instead, what are we doing? We are loving the world by gratifying the desires of the flesh and of the eyes. We are nurturing pride and possessions, 1 John 2. We're forgetting that our identity in Christ is We're forgetting our identity. We're acting as though we are still sons of disobedience when we're not. We're acting as though we want to be enslaved again to the world's weak and worthless elementary spirits, Galatians 4. We're sinfully yoking ourselves with unbelievers, allowing righteousness to partner with lawlessness, allowing idols to defile God's temple. We're letting sin reign in our mortal body. And we're presenting our members to sin as instruments of righteousness. God, help us! Romans 6. Paul warns that by failing to stand against the schemes of the devil, by failing to guard ourselves by faith from the flaming darts of the evil one, Paul tells us that believers can give space to the evil one from or by which he can further wound, influence, scheme, and deceive. Elsewhere, similar warnings of speak of the devil holding believers in a snare, 1 Timothy 3, or of even seeking to devour them, 1 Peter 5. Nevertheless, we also learn that in such situations, what should we do? When believers submit themselves to God, When believers resist the devil, the promise is he will flee because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. 
Christians clearly have authority in Christ to not let sin reign and to not present our members as instruments to unrighteousness. Christ died not only to justify you before God, but to sanctify you fully. So walk in the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth and say no to sin. We must stand firm, having fastened on the belt of truth. We must take up the shield of faith, putting on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We are to turn from anxiety by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. We're to fill our minds with whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just and lovely, whatever is commendable. For those in Christ, the call is to set our minds on things that are above. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. All the while waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we've talked about sin. We've talked about trial. And now we're going to talk about demonization. We're going to talk about it over the next five minutes or so, and then we'll talk about it in our second portion. But I want you to recognize that all of us are in war. God is holy. Sin is serious. And sin will keep you from God. Demonization, having tormenting evil spirits. And most of you in this room have encountered those with such challenges. Along with frustrating, lying, and tempting, the devil and his demons also seek to intensely trouble, biblical word, torment, biblical word, or oppress. Even at times, indwelling them. These are extreme cases where Scripture speaks of evil spirits coming upon or entering into people, commonly resulting in elevated inner torment, outward abnormal manifestations, and or extreme evil desires or activity. In referring to this phenomenon, the New Testament regularly employs the Greek participial form of the verb daimonizomai which I translate, not oppressed by demons or possessed by demons, but demonized. This experience can accompany, but stands distinct from, the way that Satan enslaves all non-believers. All non-believers are controlled by the devil, but not all non-believers are demonized. As for believers, while some evangelicals question whether those in Christ can actually be indwelt by demons, all can affirm that the devil and his angels assault true Christians. And it, he does so in very intense ways. Ways that are likely, I believe, low-level forms of demonization. This stated, while not all contexts are explicit regarding the location of the demonic influence? Is it inside? Is it outside? Paul urges the believers to not let sin reign where? In your mortal body. Don't let it happen. Paul says, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Paul contrasts what? The desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. Those are internal realities. Paul notes how emotions like sinful anger can give the devil turf 
in one's life. All of these texts indicate that while a Christian's core identity is new and safe with God, nothing can get to the deepest core of who we are in Jesus. While that is true, Satan can still infect even the inner life of a person after he or she is regenerated. That stated, we're going to break for tea. Is that good? Is now a good time? I still have a little more, but I can break now. Just finish it? Okay. Sorry. No break. Not yet. So what I want to do next is give an overview of demonic influence in the Old Testament, in the Gospels and Acts, how we see it show up in Scripture. The Old Testament, Gospels and Acts, speak in a number of ways about assaulting demonic influence. In the Old Testament, God forbade worshiping other gods and demons. He forbade engaging in the occult. And He promised to punish by death anyone who engaged in such things. There were some leaders who sought to end such practices, like Samuel and Josiah. But following in the ways of the nations, Israel often engaged in evil. Demonic evil. With respect to demonic influence, at the tenth plague against Egypt, Moses equated and yet distinguished Yahweh from the destroyer who would slay all the firstborn of the Egyptians. Exodus 12. The Lord, Yahweh, will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when He sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will do what? Pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Later, the psalmist described Yahweh's plagues against Egypt as His loosing on them the fury of His anger, wrath and indignation and distress, a troop of evil angels. That's what came against Egypt. A troop of evil angels destroying angels. We find similar imagery in the account of David's census, after which Yahweh sent pestilence on Israel. But then, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who is working destruction among its people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. The biblical narrators identify both Yahweh and Satan as influencing David to sin in taking the census. 2 Samuel 24, it was Yahweh who incited David to take the census. In 1 Chronicles 21, it is the Satan, and both are true, because Yahweh is over all things, yet in a way that He is never the positive agent of anything wicked. We learn that Yahweh sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, moving the latter to deal treacherously with the former. Consider, it was God who sent the evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders. Similarly, the narrator of Samuel spoke of a harmful spirit that would come upon and then later depart from Saul. Its presence would torment him and even move him to attempt to kill David. God was even in charge of that. We also find God sending a lying spirit to entice Ahab through the mouth of his prophets, 1 Kings 22. A spirit of confusion that would work against Egypt, Isaiah 19. A spirit of rumor against the Assyrian king Sennacherib, moving him to depart from Jerusalem, Isaiah 37. Now, while Yahweh 
was the decisive influence in Job's loss of suffering. Remember how Job talked? Yahweh gave. It was Yahweh who took away. We know the Satan was the evil instrument accomplishing God's greater purposes, none of which can ever be thwarted. In the New Testament, the Greek term daimonizomai shows up 13 times, always in the Gospels. It consistently refers to someone under the direct influence or sway of one or more evil spirits. That evening, they brought to him many who were demonized, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, there were two demonized men who met him coming out of the tombs. So some texts speak of demons entering and indwelling like Matthew 12, 45. So we know that at least some who are demonized are actually housing unclean spirits in their being. Other texts, however, are not as explicit. And the more common verbs that are associated with deliverance are broad enough, I believe, to allow for the possibility that some who are demonized may have evil spirits only attached to them oppressing from without. Thus we read verbs that simply say, be gone, hupago. Depart or go away, ap erkamai. Come out or go away, ex erkamai. Cast out, cast away. Same verb, ekbalo. Because the Greek text uses the single verb daimonizomai to cover various levels of demonic assault, and because the text is not explicit that every tormenting action includes indwelling, I prefer simply to speak of those who are demonized rather than those who are possessed. To be demonized is to be tormented, oppressed, afflicted, or negatively influenced at a qualitatively higher level than is common among most people. We see, therefore, a continuum of demonic influence. The demons are at work at level one, frustration, lying and temptation, but then a higher level that is categorized as demonization. Sometimes that means indwelt by a spirit, but not necessarily so. Twice in the New Testament we read of those who are with a demon or an evil spirit, Mark 1 and Mark 5. Because in both instances, Jesus charges the demons, come out, or perhaps better, go away from him, the from these individuals, then it's clear that to be with a demon is to be demonized. Sixteen times in the New Testament, all in the Gospels and Acts, we read of individuals whom others believe have a demon. That's what it's called. The verb demonized is not there, but they have a demon or an evil spirit. This can be one whom a demon is actually negatively influencing or oppressing, or someone who is falsely accused of having a demon, like John the Baptist or Jesus. Most of the texts make absolutely clear that to have a demon is the same as being demonized, because the context also speaks at times of demonization or of being with an unclean spirit or because we see present language of casting away or going away from the person. Now, there's also a number of other expressions in the Gospels and Acts, all of which appear to refer to demonization. Perhaps akin to the tormenting spirit in King Saul's life, we read that the devil put evil desires into the heart of Judas, John 13. And then what we read is, the devil entered into him, moving him to betray Jesus, Luke 22. Similarly, we read of a man in whom was an evil spirit, Acts 19. Scripture speaks of those who are afflicted with unclean spirits, Acts 5. People who are healed of evil spirits, Luke 7 and 8. Some of whom demons have gone away from. 
Furthermore, Scripture records that the devil bound someone with a disabling spirit. Luke 13. Another likely reference, I believe, to demonization. Finally, recalling all that the Gospels record regarding Jesus' ministry to the demonized, Luke says that Jesus healed many who were oppressed by the devil. This depiction occurs only here in Scripture, but it aptly associates oppression as the core feature of what it means to be demonized. It seems that this is a good spot to stop. When we come back, we will overview characteristics and qualities of demonization, and then we'll consider demonization in the Christian. And then we will consider a proper response to frustration, to lies and temptation, and then how do we help those who are demonized? That's section two. I hope you come back. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. For more writings, sermons, and lectures from Dr. DeRoshi, please visit www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring the God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.